I love the intro music to the Warren Cars podcast, and I thought you would too. So it was a fun little prank to play there. From this to this. This is Livable City, a regular podcast guiding us on a journey to more human places. I'm your host, Jim Hodap. I'm excited you're here to learn, to listen, and to lead. Welcome, everyone. I'm Jim Hodap, host of this bi-weekly podcast, Liberal City. I'm so glad you chose to listen to this episode, thinking deeply why we lack many liberal cities and why it can be so hard to get the particularly liberal ones. There's been a lot of unrest in our communities lately around the coronavirus, and I just want to wish you and your family safety, health, and prosperity in this uncertain time. It can be really hard to know what to do during this time, particularly for our cities, but also, more importantly, for our loved ones. Our cities are going to need a lot of love, especially after this pandemic subsides and we get back to our normal lives. I don't know when that's going to be, and I don't know that anybody really does. But when it happens, there's going to be a lot of pieces to pick up. Please stay safe, and please remember to check on those who might live alone, who need to hear a friendly human voice now and again. Make sure to give them a call or do a video conferencing so that they can see a face and remember that they're not alone. I encourage you all to reflect a little bit in this downtime on what you love about your city. What do you miss that you can't access right now because we're all stuck inside? When this all blows over, what are you going to engage with around your neighborhood first? Or what people are you going to go see first? I think for me it's going to be some of the local businesses around where I live, particularly the ones that are not part of chains. They really don't have an economic safety net, and this pandemic really points that out. They're particularly fragile, and they need our support in this time and after. Feel free to post what you're thinking about in the Liberal City Facebook group, and let's have a conversation during this time when we're all stuck at home. Anyway, on to today's episode of Liberal City. My guest today is Doug Gordon. Doug Gordon is the co-host and co-founder of the Warren Cars podcast. Doug works as a senior producer and storyteller, and like I said, he started the War on Cars podcast with two other co-hosts back in 2018. Doug's also the senior producer for Travel, and he's worked as a senior producer for Nova, and also a producer for History. Doug's done some stand-up comedy and improv in New York City as well. All around, Doug's a really energetic and fun guy to talk to, and he's got a lot of experience and knowledge in advocating in his Brooklyn neighborhood, so... I think you're all really going to enjoy this episode and learn a lot. One note, I've decided to break this episode up into two since it went for quite a while and we had a great conversation, so I hope you enjoy this this new format of, of a couple back-to-back episodes. Without further ado, I give you Doug Gordon. Doug, welcome to the front lines of the war on cars. Thanks for taking a time out from the intense battle. Join me on Liberal City. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm a big fan of your work you and your other co-hosts have been doing with your podcast and social media presence on the war on cars. So this is really exciting to have you on here. I'm glad to be here. Before we dive into the background of the war on cars, can you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you, Doug? Where are you from? And what do you enjoy doing? So um, I live in Brooklyn, specifically in Park Slope, Brooklyn. My day job for a very long time has been in television. I'm a writer and producer, and I've worked on shows for PBS, for National Geographic, a lot of cable networks. So yeah, so I'm a storyteller by trade and and employment. Um, But in my spare time, and now not so much in my spare time, but more in my full time, I've been a safe streets advocate. Um, I've been writing a lot about the 
fight here in New York for a more livable and safe city. Um, I have two kids. That's kind of the framework through which a lot of my advocacy is filtered. Um, oh, yeah, I bet. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 a big part of it. Um, but you know, I I'm not a I'm not a policy wonk. I'm not an urban planner, but I approach I approach livable cities and the the fight for them from the point of view of a storyteller. Um, you know, if we had the facts and figures on our side, which we do, that alone is never going to be enough to win this fight. So that background in media production and writing has informed my advocacy because I approach a lot of what we're doing as activists, as people fighting the quote-unquote war on cars, um, as much of a storytelling problem as it is as a policy problem. Um, so that's sort of like the short 101 on on me and, and my background and my approach to advocacy. You, uh, you're not an urban planner. You're not a professional in this space, right? Topically, at least, but you just got into it out of interest and probably out of a lot of necessity of what you experience in your daily life around New York City, right? Yeah, I think I got into it the way a lot of other people get into this. I just was riding my bike around the city, and every day that I was riding, whether it was to work or back home from work or just around the neighborhood, I'd notice little changes here and there. You know, there's a bike lane on your street. How did it get there? It wasn't there yesterday. Um, and that led me to Transportation Alternatives, which is the big advocacy organization here in New York that got me reading Streets Blog, which I'm sure your listeners are familiar with. Um, and that got me, myself, kind of diving in. You know, so I work in television and, and I've worked for programs like Nova on PBS on subjects that I know nothing about. And yet I have to tell a story about them and interview experts and put together a coherent program that viewers want to stay tuned to through the end. And so I became, much like I have to do in my TV work, I just became a very quick study in a lot of these issues. I just dove in and read a lot of books and started following the right people and learned from the best. And that really, um, <laughs> the more I dug in, the more I wanted to dig in. And it just led me down this rabbit hole of advocacy. Um, so that that was sort of was my my on ramp to being who I am today, I guess. So how did that start to focus on cars specifically? So when I first started writing about this stuff and thinking about this stuff, I was really only thinking about bicycling, and I, I think that's true for a lot of people. Um, and at the time that I started my blog, Brooklyn Spoke, um, there was a big fight over a bike lane in my neighborhood, Prospect Park West. And so that was a kind of trial by fire because I wasn't just writing about, oh, isn't it nice to bike to work and here's the gear you can use. Not that there's anything wrong with that kind of writing that's helpful for a lot of people. Um, but I got really active in the local community fight over a stretch of green paint on the side of a park, basically. Um, and that got me more focused on a lot of these issues. And so um, with that heightened awareness of what was happening, I started reading even more and got me further down that rabbit hole of um, like, well, why is it bad to have all these cars on the street next to a park? How could we make it better? Um, don't people need their cars to get around the city? I have been living in the city now for 22 years and I've 
never had a car with the exception of the first six months I was here. Um, why, why is so much of the street devoted to people who have cars? Um, all these questions that were circulating. And I, I think just the more that I read and, and the more people I spoke to, um, the more I started to see this problem for what it was. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Those are really good questions to ask, too. And, um, you know, I, I used to live in Indianapolis. I grew up in Milwaukee. Those are similar sized cities, but then uh, moved to Chicago. And I noticed, too, when I got here. So I went car free for the first time in my life. And it's very, it's a very different mindset when you've got uh, Chicago or even much more dense New York City level of density. Um, you start asking yourself instead of like, how can we get some retail and how can we get certain types of buildings? Well, those buildings are already here, so you're you're more tweaking like how do you get around, right? Well, you know, and, and New York um, really skews the conversation in some ways because where I live. In New York City as a whole, 54% of families, of households, do not own a car. And that number can go up as high as 68 or even 75%, depending on what neighborhood you're in, in Manhattan or in Brooklyn near where I live. So, you know, in, here in New York, we're talking about tweaking a system where the majority of people are not using a car for their daily needs, as opposed to a city like Milwaukee, where if you don't get around by a car, um, you're probably... Maybe you're lower income. Maybe you're just one of those bike weirdos like me. Um, <laughs> you know, you're not part of the kind of the majority conversation in your city. Um, so, what's happening in New York, or what might be happening in denser parts of Chicago, certainly San Francisco, Boston, cities like that? It's very different conversation from what's happening in the rest of the country. Um, but yeah, I, I do think asking those questions, even if you live in a place where a car is required for your daily needs, is really important because just that question alone, why have we made the cost of being a productive member of society a $5,000 down payment and $150 a month towards a lease of a car or you know, a bigger expense, depending on the type of car that you're getting, not to mention insurance and, and gas and maintenance and things like that. It's kind of absurd if you really think about it. So um, I think those are important questions to ask. They are indeed, yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your podcast, The War on Cars. So how did this idea come about? It's, uh, it's quite a provocative name, so do you mean it as directly as it implies? Right. So yeah, we'll, we'll tackle the name first. That's always a great place to start. <laughs> um, so I think as a, some of your listeners will probably know, anytime you try to change a street in the slightest way, you take one parking spot out of 50 or 500 and you turn it into bike parking for 10 bikes, or you want to take a four lane road and give a little space on the side to a bike lane or a bus lane, you're accused of waging a war on cars. Um, you know, I liken it to the war on Christmas. You know, if, if you want to include one Hanukkah song at uh, <laughs> at a holiday concert, it's like, well, why do you hate Christmas? I don't <laughs> hate Christmas, but we have to recognize there are more people participating in our society than just one type of person. Um, so I think that's that's a little bit about where the the title comes from. In fact, um, Rob Ford, the former mayor of Toronto, now deceased, um, when he was elected way back, he. He basically represented the more suburban car-owning section of Toronto, and he declared that the war on cars was now over. So we decided to take that title and run with it. It's it, it's provocative on purpose. How about that? Um, we want to, people to have this conversation, and we want people to um, 
ask that question, well, you know, why shouldn't there be a war on cars? Um, so that's where the title comes from. And then um, my co-hosts are Aaron Napersek, who is the founding editor of Streets Blog, and Sarah Goodyear, who's a journalist. She's written for City Lab and other publications related to um, transportation and city issues. And we had been talking about doing a podcast for quite some time. Um, this is not a knock on other podcasts on the same subject, but at the time that we started it, some of them were um, a little dry, a little wonky, um, less of a cultural conversation and more geared toward inside baseball folks like you and me yep. um, mm -hmm. who would tune into or read or listen to any sort of media related to this subject. We wanted to create a podcast that spoke to cars and driving as a cultural issue that we need to solve. Um, and I sometimes joke that my ideal audience member is my mother-in-law, who lives in suburban Chicago in Wilmette, um, and who drives everywhere because she needs to and because that's what she's used to. So I don't. we don't need to speak to you or to people like me. We want to speak to people who are not inclined necessarily to agree with us. Um, and we want them to sort of maybe see what cars have done to the world and that there is another way, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. There's some synergies there with uh, why I started Liberal City. You know, so I, I do want to um, empower people like you and me to uh, be a little bit more effective, but I also want to reach a broader audience and discussion about what makes for a Liberal City. And sounds like... Similarly, you do as well, focused on how we use our streets, right? And particularly right now, most of the U.S., most of the U.S., North America in general is dedicated to cars, so hence your focus, right? Right, and and um, and I think, yeah, much like your podcast and some of the guests that you have on who are speaking to this issue, not just from, like you said, you know, we were talking about an urban planner's point of view, but speaking at it more as just like, well, how do we live together in these cities that we call home? How do we make them more livable, more pleasant, more safe? Um, and yeah, I mean, even if you live car-free in a city where that's possible, and there are a very small number of places where that is possible in North America, you're still dominated by cars at every turn. You're, there's no choice but to be exposed to cars everywhere you go and to think of them and deal with their effects. So we we want to talk a lot about that that you know even if you love driving even if you need a car um you ought to think about well is there another way how how would it be better for me as a driver if nobody else had a car probably be pretty great um so we want people to ask those questions while they're listening as well yeah that's fantastic so what's your definition of success with uh, the war on cars, when do you release a podcast episode and declare to Twitter, you know, that's it, folks. The war on cars has been won. Well, unfortunately, I don't think we're ever going to win. You know, we have cars have a hundred year head start on a lot of the issues that we're talking about, um, and it's they're so entrenched and the the problems are so big and so expensive to solve that it's going to take a very long time to fix them all. Thankfully, I think you know we have a lot of great examples from other cities in the Netherlands, in Denmark. Um, we have great examples from here in the United States of, of projects that are working and that are succeeding. You know, the 14th Street Busway in Manhattan, 
uh, Market Street in San Francisco, which was just closed to cars and became a yep. bus and bikeway. Great um, examples, right? You know, so so we have good examples of things we can point to and say, you know, success will look like that when it's not just one street in Manhattan or one short section of a street in San Francisco, but when it is, you know, Indianapolis is a really great example. They've got right the red line, the the bus system that they've just enhanced. Yes. Um, and that's a huge success for them. There are struggles, of course. It's not all sunshine and roses. But um, I think success will look a little bit like that. I, you know, Bringing it back to what I was saying earlier about how my advocacy is framed through my children, success to me looks a lot like a city where my 10-year-old daughter and my 7-year-old son can walk in their neighborhood by themselves to go to the corner to get a gallon of milk if I need to send them out, or to go to a friend's house um, because they've, they want to go play, or to go to the playground or ride their bikes up to the park by themselves. That, to me, would be success. Um, you know, It's that old 880 city idea where we really want to build that city for the 8-year-old and the 80-year-old and everybody in between. So success, to me, would look like, yes, my daughter, go over to your friend's house, and I don't have to walk you to the corner and worry about the giant honking SUV that's rounding the corner with its driver on the phone. Absolutely. That's a beautiful picture. Yeah. We talked a little bit about that with Chris and Melissa Bruntlett of Modacity, you know, how like empowering that would be to somebody, to a child. Up until 16 in the US, right, you're you're pretty much stuck if unless mom and dad take you somewhere or somebody picks you up, you're stuck, especially if you live in the suburbs. So if you could do what you describe in a lot of places and be safe long before you're 16, what a change that is. Yeah, and I think you know kids are really resilient and very independent, and they can be at a very early age. And that's something I try to teach my kids. Um, you know, I'm not worried about stranger danger or anything like that. And, and living in New York, I'm not worried about them being mugged or robbed or, or anything of that nature. I'm worried about them being hit by a car. Um, and so we're robbing children of their independence when we, even in a big city, don't allow them to experience everything they're capable of doing from a very, a very young age. One of my uh, best friends uh, lives in Stuttgart, but I went to high school with him in Milwaukee, and he has two daughters. And I remember the last time I was there, that, so they live in, you know, quote-unquote suburban Stuttgart, but it's hardly suburban uh, by our standards in the U.S., I remember one morning going out early, you know, around 8 a.m. or something like that, and I saw on the streets like a bunch of like four or five-year-olds just walking. They, they clearly were going to school, right? And I asked my friend, I'm like, where are their parents? Um, and he's like, oh, it doesn't really matter. It's super safe here. They're not going to get hit by a car. You know, they, they just, they walk themselves to school. And my, you know, my jaw dropped. It was amazing. Yeah, I mean, the flip side of that, or the the other end of the spectrum, is um, my family, we were in the Netherlands two summers ago, and so we were tourists for the time that we were there, and we were riding around during the times of the day when most people our age were at work. Um, And when we would ride around, we saw so many senior citizens on bicycles just out with other friends, um, clearly on their way to, you know, maybe go have lunch, riding through a park or whatever. And my wife and I both got actually a little sad for our own parents who live in uh, rather car-dominated parts of the country, right? Like my in-laws are in a suburb of Chicago. My mother lives uh, north of Boston. And they're very highly dependent on cars. And the degree of freedom that we saw for these people all 
probably 70 plus, the same age as our parents, um, was really awesome. And uh, unfortunately, <laughs> that's not possible in so much of the United States. No, it's true. It's sad, yeah. And not only that, but like, I find like even my own grandpa, who's 95 and lives in Rockford, Illinois, and he's in a retirement home, um, he's stuck. He can't drive anymore. You shouldn't be driving at 95, right? So, But to him, the uh, symbol of freedom is the car, right? So he, he mourns his loss of freedom because he's been so tied to a car for so long. He can't see it any other way. Yeah, and I think that is the the problem that we're up against. Um, certainly, it's a lot different for people who are seniors or people with mobility issues. Um, but just so many people who could otherwise be getting around another way, even in the slightly car-dominated suburbs in which they might live, are just so resistant to change because um, it's like the water that we're swimming in, and 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 they feel like we're we're asking someone to come along and drain the tank. Basically, it's like, well, you know, how are we all going to swim? Um, and and we are trying to point towards another way. Yeah, I think that's where your notion that you were talking about about telling a story, right? Telling a narrative is super powerful. Instead of saying, "I want to take this away from you," you're trying to paint a picture of what could be, which is a beautiful picture, right? Yeah, and a lot of my advocacy has been focused on painting those pictures. So, you know, during the Prospect Park West bike lane fight, um, we just had got tons of pictures out there of kids riding their bicycles. We had a kids ride the lanes. It wasn't a protest ride because there were no signs or angry chanting. It was just kids and balloons and bright colored T-shirts riding up and down this bike lane that was still being opposed by a group of people. Um, I've tried to in other areas of my advocacy really focus on the like the depth and breadth of the types of people that you'll see cycling in New York City, which is you know a very diverse, multicultural place, and and we want to make sure cycling reflects that. Um, so yeah, I think it's a lot of that is a lot of it is about subverting the narrative that cycling is just for the young, healthy, fit, white, largely male gentrifying hipsters who make up so much of the story <laughs> in the media. It's, it's not that. It's for families. It's for low-income workers going to their jobs. It's for older people who you know are just out for their afternoon constitutional. It's, it's all of that and everything in between. And so a lot of it is really pushing back on that, that idea. I have a little running thing on my blog. Sometimes when you read a story about a bike lane in the news, it's, it, the headline is something to the effect of, you know, uh, residents and cyclists battle over bike lane. And I always ask, well, wait a minute, where do all the cyclists live? What about the residents who like to bike? Um, and that, <laughs> that was kind of the um, story that was running through the Prospect Park West bike lane, that, that this idea that it was the residents who were opposed to it and the cyclists who were imposing it uh, upon these innocent, otherwise happy neighbors. And that wasn't true. I, I live in the neighborhood. I bike my kids up to the park and the library, um, to the grocery store, and I wanted safety as well. And um, so I, I, I've been pushing back on that narrative that just because you oppose something doesn't mean you get more, um, I don't know, credence perhaps than somebody who is in favor of something. Yeah. Plus the power of wording, right? It's like the way they worded that, you don't have a home, right? You don't live there. Yeah, and, and you know, so I, I push back also. There's a a lot that I'm sure your listeners will will be familiar with, where where people say we shouldn't say cyclists, 
we should say people who bike. And I agree with that. I take it one step further, and I usually try to say just New Yorkers. Um, we need to make the streets safe for New Yorkers. We need to make the streets safe for Brooklynites who like to get around on their bicycles. And so I think, you know, obviously that can apply to any city. And I think you need to make people who bike part of the fabric of the city in which they live. And really make sure that we don't get into any of this nativist stuff. You know, I've lived in the neighborhood for 20 years and I never needed a bike lane. The kind of stuff that you hear at community meetings or on the evening news. Um, I like to joke also that, you know, my, my daughter and my son are native born Brooklynites and they would like safe streets. Their, their <laughs> opinion counts just as much as the person who's lived here for 40 years. Yes, indeed. If not more, because they're going to be taking over before long. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So switching topics a little bit, um, Doug, what are the important qualities of a place that make it livable to you? You know, what, what really matters to you? Um, diversity of the types of people, both in terms of culture, ethnic background, economic level. You know, I want to live in a neighborhood where my kids' teachers can afford to live here, are, are firefighters and police officers and people who have lower income jobs than that, um, can all afford to live here. I, I, I don't like the homogeneity that you're seeing happen in so many neighborhoods across the country. Gentrification is, is, is a real issue um, mm-hmm. and a very tough nut to crack. So to me, a, a place where everybody feels welcome, just whatever that means to you, to your listeners, but that that is at the top of the list. Um, I think, I, I wouldn't say second, but obviously a place where you live without fear. Um, a place where you can walk around and trust that you will get to your destination safely without having to put much too without having to put too much thought into how you're getting there, what street you're taking, do I cross at this time? Do I make sure I come back at that time? That's really important to me. Um, I think also, you know, there's this notion the mayor of Paris on Hidalgo is pushing this notion of the 15 minute city, this idea that, Everything you need would be within a 15-minute walk or quick bicycle ride of where you live. And I think that's really important. Obviously, density is the number one factor for that. Um, and, and so I think having everything really close by, when I really think about where do I want to live for the rest of my life, I want to live in a place where, kind of like I was saying before, if I'm baking or cooking and I realize, oh, shoot, I forgot the milk. Um, I don't have to strap myself and my children into a car and drive 15 minutes and search for parking and go into some big box store and go through aisles that are as wide as a city street, find the milk, and you know do the whole thing in reverse on my way back. I want to just be able to run down to the corner, pick up some milk, and be back in five minutes. Um, that's To me, that's the more concrete way of thinking about that neighborhood. Um, and where I want to live. That that to me, that's that's what it means to make a place livable. Just the types of people that are there, the the different types of people there that are there, and just the ease with which you can move through your daily life. Yeah, absolutely. How about how easily you can meet those other folks too? Um, I hear that kind of implied in what you're saying, but how important is that to you? Where you can you can be out in the public area, the public realm. Again, not fear for anything like you were talking about certainly your safety, but that you can do that in an enjoyable way, meeting other people. Yeah, I I love that about where I live. So there's like two levels to that. One is that I can go out with my family and we can walk around and we can bump into all kinds of people who we already know. Um, There are lots of kids on our street who my daughter and son go to school with. 
we walk two blocks over to the park and we, we never make play dates because we can just say, let's go to the park. Guarantee you someone is going to be there and then we can figure it out. You guys can hang out all afternoon if you want. So there's that level of the people that I, I know through other means. I, I know that when I walk out of my house, I'll probably bump into them. But then there's the quality of relationships of just I know the person at the bodega behind the counter. She's the person I buy a coffee from every now and then, or when I have to run in to get that milk that I forgot while I'm baking. Like, she's there. And we don't know each other by name necessarily, but she kind of, you know, she says, hello, how are you? Oh, the kids haven't been in in a while. Those quality of relationships are great. Um, Same with like the dry cleaners or the laundromat. Um, I think that to me is such a huge quality of what it means to be in a livable neighborhood, and also to really understand that you're a part of something bigger than yourself. You know, when you, we had David Roberts on, who is a writer for Vox, um, and uh, my co-host Aaron Aberstek did an interview with him, and and one of the things that he um, said that really stuck with me, and I'm going to paraphrase him, is that, you know, when you live in the suburbs and you're driving around in your land yacht, which is basically what he calls an SUV. Um, and, you know, maybe you interact with, and I'm going to oversimplify what he said, is, you know, maybe you interact with your barista and the clerk at Target, but then you load everything back into your land yacht and you go home to your suburban box and you park your car in your garage and you don't, you don't have those kind of chance interactions that you can have. Look, that's not to say that the person in the suburbs who goes to the same Starbucks every morning doesn't know the person who's making their coffee and doesn't say hello, and, and that those aren't third places, social gathering places for for suburbanites. Right. But, um, but I think it's just the possibility of having that in a city is so much greater. I mean, I sometimes say that as a New Yorker, I see more people before 9 a.m. than most people see all week. Um, <laughs> it's so true. You know, and that's it's, um, it's like the old army saying, you know, we do more before 9 a.m. than most people do all week. <laughs> that's how I feel about living in a city. I hop, so on, I hop on the subway and I see every type of person you can imagine. And if you are the right kind of person and you make an effort at it, I think it, it, it help, hopefully makes you a better person just being in that environment. It makes you more understanding of other people. Um, it makes you hopefully a better participant in democracy. Oh, that's really well said. Yeah, I too experienced that incrementally over time, right? I moved downtown Indianapolis first. That was my first kind of walkable area uh, what I came to call much more livable uh, for my own definition. And what you just said, I started to experience. And now in Chicago, there's so many more areas that you're able to do that in. And it's fantastic. I I had a theory before I moved uh, into a place like this that that might be true. And it was so amazing to have that theory and then have it become true, like live it out. Yeah, I mean, I would say there's even like a third level to those social interactions. And and that also is just um, the people I pass by on the street who I recognize. Um, you know, you see the same person running in the park every day. I, I love those things. The person I see at the library anytime I drop off a book who's just there sitting. Um, again, it's not that these things can't happen in suburbs or, or didn't happen in the suburb in which I grew up. It's just that they happen more here and uh, that's what I love about it. Yes, agreed. So do cars generally bring more or less livability to a place? What do you think about that? Um, 
You know, I think cars are, they have their place. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the analogy that I've been in, been using lately is that, you know, we need to think about mobility as a, as a Swiss army knife, um, that every once in a while, you're going to need the big blade, you know, because you've got like that, that stick that needs to be whittled down. But most of the time, you're going to need the tweezers, you're going to need the nail file, the corkscrew. But unfortunately, we've we've engineered so much of our, so many of our cities in a way that where we have that mobility Swiss Army knife, and the only tool that's left and that's working is the big blade. And so, well, then of course it's going to be like when you try to open that bottle of wine, you're going to cut yourself. Um, you know, I think that cars are all negative externality. There's nothing positive about a car for a person who isn't using it, um, and so. They just make places unlivable for anyone who is not in that other car. There's some writer who says, you know, if you if you want a better commute, buy your neighbor a bike. Um, I think, you know, the, I don't need to go down the list of like why cars are terrible for other people. Um, you know, the noise, the pollution, all the rest. But um, yeah, cars just destroy places. They um, decrease social interactions between people. Um, and it's not just when you're in a car. There's a great study by Donald Appleyard that shows that like the busier a street is, the fewer so- social interactions people have who live on that street. And the fewer cars, obviously, the more they have because it's easier to sit outside on your stoop, let's say, or send your kid across the street to meet a friend. So um, I don't know if I'm really answering your question in the right way, but, um, you know, livable city and cars are just completely incompatible. Now, obviously, like I've been saying, people with mobility issues, the handicapped, um, elderly, they're probably going to need a car in many situations. Um, But I think that we have made life so unlivable for even those people because we've made cars dependent for people who don't need them. Um, And so that's... um, that's part of my pushback against cars, and um, so yeah, to make a city more livable, it's just get get rid of the cars. It's really easy. Uh, you know, we have a a block party on my street twice a year, twice during the summer, and I talk to neighbors I never speak to during the rest of the year. Um, I meet people who've just moved onto the block. I meet people who moved onto the block two years ago, and I have not seen them once. Um, and the reason that hasn't happened is because there's just a stream of cars coming down my street every hour of the day. And so if we, every time we just get rid of the cars, the livability of our street um, improves. Our kids can ride their bikes up and down and we can all kind of breathe easy knowing they're going to be fine running around skipping rope. Um, it, it's super fun. So yes, that is a long and rambling way <laughs> of saying cars suck. I could have just said, I could have just said cars suck. That would have been a very short podcast. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this first part of a two-part series with Doug Gordon from the War on Cars podcast. Join us back here two weeks from now for the second part. Thanks for listening as always, and see you back here in a couple of weeks. Thank you.